Hey y'all, it's Janice here, aka J Nice on the mic, and this is Dirty Diversity, a podcast on all things diversity, equity, and inclusion. This podcast is called Dirty Diversity because in this day and age, diversity has become sort of a dirty or bad word that causes a lot of knee-jerk and negative reactions. The goal of this podcast is to dissect diversity, or lack thereof, inside and outside of companies, and also to discuss current events around equity and inclusion, as well as discussing solutions for creating a more cohesive world and workplace. My name is Janice, aka J Nice on the mic. <laughs> that was and still is my moniker on YouTube. Some of you may know I started a YouTube channel almost 10 years ago to discuss topics around race and black identity, and it seemed to really resonate with my audience. I'm also a TEDx speaker, a professor, a diversity and inclusion consultant, and a writer with a PhD in organizational psychology. Welcome to Dirty Diversity, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy to have you here with me. Hey y'all, Jay Nice on the mic with episode 28 of the Dirty Diversity podcast. I hope y'all are doing wonderfully today. We are in a new week. Um, August is going to be over soon. It just seems like 2020 flew by, probably because of this is undoubtedly one of the most wild years in probably all of our existences. So I think 2020 has been such an interesting year. And um, so today I just wanted to talk about a bunch of things with y'all. I feel like, you know, we're all friends here so we can have some a tea time or tea talk um, this is more of like diversity. <laughs> but um, I first wanted to just say thank you so much for all of you who are loyal listeners. I really appreciate your support. Sometimes I get emails from people saying, you know, that they, they listen to the podcast and that they enjoy it. And that means the world to me. So I'm so excited that uh, many of you listen and that you enjoy the content on the podcast. So I don't know what today is even going to be called. And I guess usually I title the podcast before I record them. But today I'm just kind of all over the place. I have a lot of thoughts I wanted to share. But before getting into today's podcast, I wanted to just share that I have finally decided to do something that I've been wanting to do for a long time now. And um, I've decided that I am curating a public course on white supremacy. It's called Unlearning, Understanding, Undoing, and Unpacking White Supremacy. And there are, I will put a link to the tickets in the description box for any of you who are interested. Um, there will be 10 lessons. It's a course that I will be conducting via Zoom, and there are 10 lessons, and you can pay for each class separately. Um, and each class is only $20, and uh, part of the proceeds from each ticket will go to support 
organizations that amplify and highlight black women. Um, these organizations are called, one is Girl Trek. I had an opportunity to, I've been listening to their Black History Boot Camp, which I know I mentioned on the podcast before, um, but it was started by two black women who, I think their mission is basically to just encourage um, encourage black women's health and, and um, encourage black women to develop a healthy habit of walking every day. So it's called Girl Trek. The other is Buy From a Black Woman, um, which amplifies black female entrepreneurs. And the other is the Loveland Foundation, which goes to support black women and girls. It was started by or founded by Rachel Cargill. So proceeds from each ticket will go to support those organizations. If you want more info, I will um, be reminding y'all each week leading up to September 1st, which will be class one. I um, decided that I didn't want to sell it as a package because I've gotten some questions on LinkedIn where people said, can I just buy all the classes at once? And I think that I, I like the idea of, you know, when you buy everything at once, you can't join once it's already started. Um, but I like the idea of people uh, being able to be part of the class even after the class has already begun. So, you know, I think that each class you can get separately. And um, yeah, so all the info will be in the show notes. I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that. And I've been meaning to or wanting to um, conduct a workshop, a public workshop on this topic for a while now. But as you can imagine, talking about white supremacy can be very, a very sensitive subject. And, you know, I, I didn't know if the public was ready for it. But now I think that um, based on just the state of the country and the world, I think that this is a class that the world is ready for. So I'm super excited about that. So moving on, I wanted to also just give a give a big like congratulations and shout out. It's not like she listens to this, but just in case she does or any of her people do. I'm so excited about Kamala Harris being Joe Biden's VP pick. That was also announced this week. It's been an interesting week, but so I, I kind of wanted to get into a discussion on blackness and what I've been seeing, what we've all been seeing as of late. So once Joe Biden announced Kamala Harris as the VP pick, one thing that I've been seeing is like people fighting over what Kamala Harris is. I'll give you an example. I posted um, when the announcement was made on my Instagram stories. And if y'all don't follow me on Instagram, let's connect on Instagram. But posted on my Instagram stories, Black Girl Magic. And I had a picture of Kamala Harris. And someone came into my inbox, presumably um, an Indian woman, uh, came into my inbox and she said, oh, she's also Indian, so like multicultural girl magic or something like that. Kind of like trying to um, downplay my black girl magic message. And that annoyed me, you know. Um, as far as I know, when I've heard Kamala Harris in interviews, she identifies as black. Um, I saw her on a Breakfast Club interview where she said, I am black. So I don't know if she identifies as mixed, multiracial, but I've heard her in, in an interview say, I am black. Also, she, you know, I feel like a lot of people have been denouncing her blackness and saying she's not really black because her... Uh, her father was an immigrant, so he was Jamaican, but an immigrant. Her mother was an Indian immigrant, so she's not really, quote-unquote, a black American. Um, and I, I just think that it's so 
it, it's wild to me that within our communities, we have this conception of what blackness is. And it's like, who even deemed you the invisible, um, like black, uh, the invisible black, like police, like who deemed you like the all knowing, like what is black, what it means to be black. And, you know, uh, I've shared this story on my YouTube channel and I'll put a link to a YouTube video. One of the first YouTube videos I recorded on my channel in 2011, I was talking about this and I was talking about, I believe I brought up Barack Obama, um, but I, I was just saying in college what I experienced a lot and I went to undergrad in Virginia, I'm from Virginia, and I went to VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. At the time it was the largest, I believe it was the largest or second largest behind UVA, but it was the largest university in Virginia, public university in Virginia. But um, so I, I remember in college, my peers questioning my blackness because of these invisible markers that I was completely unaware of, like the fact that I didn't know how to play spades, which a lot of black people know how to play spades. I um, didn't watch Medea. I didn't even know what Tyler Perry movies were. Medea was not something I knew about or I watched. And so, you know, I had peers that would joke with me my freshman year in my dorm and they would say, oh, you're not really black, you know, and then once I said, oh, my parents are from Cameroon, oh, yeah, you're not really black. So it was, like, frustrating and annoying, and I shared um, I shared my experiences with this in the YouTube video, which is in the show notes, but um, it was just, like, I just think the same thing is happening with Kamala Harris. We saw the same thing with Barack Obama where people were questioning his blackness. And I think with Kamala Harris, it's even more so because she's a woman. Barack Obama, I think a lot of black people felt comfortable with him because he identifies as black. There was some controversy in 2010 when Obama filled out his census and he put black versus multiracial. And I think people were there were some people that were mad at that. But Obama identifies as a black, and on top of that, he was married to a black woman and he had two black daughters. So I think that the questioning of his blackness was there, but it wasn't to the extent of Kamala Harris, who is married to a white man, and um, you know she, I, I, you know she's also said, or you know I, I feel like she's made statements that she also identifies as with her Indian heritage. I've never heard the statements or heard her say it in an interview, but I'm sure there it's out there. Um, I know that I was reading an article that was saying she, um, she wears, she had a picture where she was wearing a sari. So I think she identifies also with the Indian culture. Um, but I, I, I think that for her, it's more so because she is again, married to a white person. So I think that sometimes with some black people that like delegitimizes you as a black person or makes you quote unquote less black somehow. Um, but so I, you know, I just think it's interesting to look at. And I read this really fascinating Washington Post article, uh, I believe, or New York Times article. I'll leave it in the show notes that was talking about how this is a really interesting moment in our history and how Indian people should be reckoning with their anti-blackness. You know, this discussion about is Kamala Harris black? Is she Indian? Um, I think that we like to claim 
and it's interesting. I saw the same thing happen with Lupita. So Lupita Nyong'o, who's an actress, Yale educated. Uh, she has an Academy Award for 12 Years a Slave, I believe. Um, she, when she first came out and when she won the Oscar, people were like, oh, she's Mexican. They said that because I believe she grew up in Mexico. Her name, Lupita, is a Mexican name. Um, but she, I, she, as far as I know, she doesn't identify as a Mexican. But I think it's like they're all, we're in, in America, I feel like we're constantly engaged in these race wars. And when people do amazing things, I think that a, a race, each race of people wants to claim that person as their own. So Lupita Nyong'o, even when you Google her name, which I just did, it says Kenyan Mexican actress. She was born in Mexico City. She, but she was raised in Kenya from the age of one. So why is she considered Kenyan Mexican? Cause she was born there and she hasn't, like, I'm so confused. But so, you know, Lupita is not Mexican. She's Kenyan. So I just think it's really fascinating too. And I want us all, I, you know, I encourage you to just kind of follow the race wars that are taking place and just follow the national conversation about Kamala Harris. And I think that there's going to be a national sort of witch hunt to make her seem like she is. I think that that's just what happens in politics to women is that they get dragged through the mud. Everything that they do is under a microscope, even more so than their male counterparts. And, you know, I, I know that they're going to try to dig up stuff from Kamala's past and just make her out to be this horrible person. They did the same thing with AOC. Um, when she first came into prominence and when she was running for public office. So I, you know, I think that the same thing is going to happen with Kamala Harris. But I just think it's interesting. And I think that I've had conversations with y'all about this before, but within communities of color, I, what I hope to see is more conversations about the anti-blackness that is rampant within non-black communities of color, particularly within Indian communities. Um, and, you know, if you watched the show, which I encourage you to watch the show, um, Indian Matchmaking, I mentioned that I believe on maybe a previous episode, and I know I talk about it in my racial equity workshops, but... Indian Matchmaking is a show on Netflix about an Indian woman from Mumbai, India. She's a matchmaker and she she helps millennials find, uh, you know, find matches. It's like an arranged marriage, but it's like 2.0 millennial style. So, um, it, one thing that I was, that was super disturbing that I noticed when I watched the show was the emphasis on the criteria of being fair skinned. Almost every person who was looking for a, a significant other and sharing with, um, what's her name? Auntie Seema, <laughs> sharing with, uh, Seema auntie, what their criteria was all said like fair skinned. And we all know that, um, you know, India is well known for their caste system, which uh, places people who are fairer skinned at a higher place within society. So I think that now, if there's anything that can come out of this moment of a public conversation on racial identity, I want there to be a reckoning within communities of color of how maybe they perpetuated anti-blackness and anti-black sentiment. If you've ever told your child not to date or not to marry somebody who was black, you are perpetuating an anti-black sentiment. And I'm reading 
this really fascinating book that I would encourage y'all to read. It's called Cast, and um, they talk about this a lot. And in the book, it really encourages the usage of the, you know, saying a subordinate caste or a dominant caste versus saying a particular race. And I, I just think that the book goes into the history and it's really, really interesting and such a fascinating book. And I'll definitely be unpacking some of the content in the book for my white supremacy course. Um, but I, you know, I just wanted to share that and just share my thoughts. I think that it's, it's unfortunate and problematic that we're always engaged in a discussion about who is black enough. Someone is deemed not black enough because of some invisible and arbitrary standards that a group of people, maybe a small sect of a population deemed as, you know, blackness or whatever. And I just, I think it's fascinating to just watch what's going on. I've always been really fascinated with how people develop racial identities and um, I think we're going to definitely explore and unpack that a little bit in the white supremacy course. But I just wanted to share that since that happened this week. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess this isn't even really, I don't even know what this episode was, what, what it's going to be called, what the purpose is. Um, but one thing I, I did want to share and kind of to switch gears a little bit, let me grab my paperwork. Um, one of my close friends, Donna, uh, she's a PhD student. She is studying um, diversity trainings and their effectiveness. And she sent me this article, um, and I'll put it a link to it in the show notes, but it's from Quartz. Uh, so this article uh, looked at uh, white men and why the reasons that white men give for not wanting to get involved in diversity and inclusion initiatives. And it's so interesting to me. You know, they did this survey. And based on the survey, what they found was that what they found is that only 10% of the white cisgender men in white collar jobs in the U.S. that they surveyed felt that uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion wasn't important. So only 10%. The other 90% felt like it was somewhat important or it was very important, which I think is interesting. Um, also, based on their research, what they found is that of those cisgender white males uh, who work in white-collar jobs in the U.S., they found that 42% thought that DEI was very important. Um, but the number one reason that the men in the surveys gave for uh, not getting involved with diversity, equity, and inclusion at their jobs was because, quote-unquote, I'm too busy. <laughs> I thought that that was so interesting. So these white men said that the number one reason why they don't get involved with diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in their companies is because they're too busy. So that just provides further proof that um, still even in the moment that you know we're in, maybe diversity, equity, and inclusion is not a priority. And um, I wanted to bring up something else. I think I talked about this last week. Uh, I did. So, you know, Robin D'Angelo, I talked about in last week's episode and and my thoughts on um, white people leading anti-racism efforts, which I think is super problematic. But, you know, I, I think it's so interesting and, and I, I'm trying to figure out the answer, really, because I saw it on somebody's Instagram and they said, you know, why would why would white people try to dismantle something that they benefit from? And 
I, I thought about that comment somebody left under something on Instagram, and I was like, that is really powerful, and that's really interesting to think about. Um, and I don't have the answer. I don't know what the answer is. Um, kind of like, and I compare it to like doctors. You know, doctors are able to have livelihoods because people are sick and people get sick. So I don't know if doctors would be 100% incentivized to help people lead these super healthy lifestyles where they're, they don't need to come into the doctor's office because doctor's offices, everything is in the United States is based on capitalism and, you know, making money and these drug companies have to, you know, make money. So if people aren't getting sick, if people are using natural remedies to fix any sort of ailments, that's not profitable for drug companies. What's profitable for drug companies is people being sick. So I don't know how strongly doctors in general um, would push people to, um, you know, to adopt these natural remedies because you're, you know, a doctor is in business because people are sick. So if you kind of um, take that metaphor and apply it to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but particularly anti-racism workshops and trainings, if I'm a white person, the reason, if I'm a white person leading um, anti-racism trainings, the reason I'm able to even make a profit off of these trainings is because of white supremacy. So why would I have a vested interest in dismantling white supremacy when I I actively benefit from my white privilege? You know, and, and that's a really fascinating question. And I'm I'm thinking about it, you know, and I think that, is it possible, I guess a question that I want to pose to you and ask is, is it possible to have a vested interest in something, even if you will be disadvantaged by the dismantling of something? So is it possible for doctors to really, really care about and not want people to get sick? Because if nobody was ever sick, we wouldn't need doctors and doctors would be out of business. So in a, in a really kind of twisted and weird way, it's kind of like doctors need people to be sick. Um, same, the same way that diversity, equity, and inclusion experts need um, companies to have diversity, equity, and inclusion issues and problems. And, you know, I, I'm just kind of navigating that and thinking about that and thinking if how vested of an interest will you have in something that you actively benefit from and that provides you with different advantages. So I don't know. I wanted to share that research with you all since my podcast is focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. As I stated, all of the info will be in the show notes. So let's see. I talked about that research. I talked about Kamala Harris and my thoughts on her and her blackness, and I'm super excited. I think it's really inspiring that she's, you know, um, has the potential to be the um, one of the highest offices in the free world. I think it's really exciting. It's a monumental moment for women of color, and it's just something to, I'm really excited about. So um, talked about my thoughts about that. And again, if you want to see the YouTube video, I uh, recorded like almost 10 years ago about blackness and this topic of like what it means to be black. I'll put that in the show notes for you. And um, lastly, again, if you want to enroll in my first 
uh, public course on white supremacy, you're able to secure your seat by getting a ticket uh, to class one by clicking the link in the show notes um, or shoot me an email if you have any questions. So I think that that is it. And lastly, um, if you read my book, Dirty Diversity, and, and you enjoyed it, I encourage you to um, complete a review on Amazon. It helps with the algorithm, and it helps people who may need the Dirty Diversity book to find it. So those of you who've read the book already, I would really, really appreciate it if you just left a, a brief review on Amazon so more people can find the book. So um, that is the end of this episode. I'll have to think of a title for this episode, but this is episode 28 of the Dirty Diversity Podcast. Thank y'all so much for listening. I hope you found this episode to be insightful and informative, and I will check y'all out next week.